Who do you want to be as a leader? What are the blind spots you're missing? If you had a magic wand and you could change anything about your workplace, what would you do with it? These are the kinds of questions we explore on Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt. I'm a keynote speaker, emotional intelligence coach, and leadership trainer who partners with executives and emerging leaders who want to achieve extraordinary results for themselves and their organizations. You're in the right place if you're ready to cultivate the self-awareness to be the leader you were born to be. Let's go on this journey together. Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt, and I'm excited again for another wonderful, wonderful guest. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Daniel Monahan, who is a leading uh, leadership keynote speaker and adjunct professor who uniquely combines his real life multinational executive experience with a rigorous foundation in academic research. He has over 30 years experience and multiple industries, including S&P 100 and Fortune 500 companies. He graduated with a a five-year doctor in business administration degree from the University of Manchester, where he did his dissertation in crisis leadership. His newest book is The Pragmatic Optimist, Six Proven Strategies for Leading During a Crisis. And I love this. If we're going to do a nice summary, um, Daniel helps leaders become a better version of themselves. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I just have to say, for anybody who's watching on video, we've got the book right here, The Pragmatic Optimist. I loved, love, love this book for hundreds of reasons. But I think one wow. of the things I really loved is there was a whole person approach to this, both how mm. somebody is doing this on the individual level, how they're doing mm. with the people around them. Mm. And the most wonderful thing is I think everyone should read this book because it doesn't matter if you have the title of leader. Every day we are showing up as leader leaders in our lives. And I was even as I was reading through this, I was thinking about a lot of the crises that have showed up in our life um, personally, right? With things like cancer journeys and losing parents unexpectedly, uh, childbirth and a master bedroom, like all of these things were coming up for me as I was thinking through, as I was reading through the, the stories and the exercises and the examples that I gave you. So I just want to say, Daniel, it's a wonderful, awesome book. Thank you. Th- thanks for your kind words. Um, it's really gratifying hearing that. Um, you know, being a first-time author, it's, I'm still dealing with how to receive such feedback. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, I, I'm really excited that it's touching people the way it's touched me. Um, and and as, as um, w- w- one of the uh, literary giants uh, said, she's like, if, if you found a book, that has not been written, then that you really want to read, then you have to write it. Um, and that's how The Pragmatic Optimist came about. It was, it was something I was searching for in my journey as a leader that would help me and also develop others because I've been doing that um, simultaneously for the major part of my career. Um, and, and, and I was finding this gaping hole. So, so being able to be able to step in with my, you know, piece of, of work to be able to help bridge some of those gaps. I, I think it's, uh, it's a very exciting journey and I'm glad to hear uh, your positive feedback about it. Thank you. Thank you, Kristen. Yeah, you're welcome. And, and let's actually start there to help the audience understand a little bit around your journey, because you've been in corporate and had a lot of exposure to many of these things that help you. And I was even before we were talking and getting live on the show um, around, you got to be the observer and see a lot of this in action. Um, so tell us a little bit about your journey and what got you to this work you're doing in the world right now. <laughs> okay, so it all began in 1998. I'll give you the cold note version, the, <laughs> the podcast version. So it began in, began in 1998. Um, based on an official assignment, I had to overcome my almost 30 years of fear of public speaking um, that year. Um, and I overcame it and all of a sudden began to see the gap that leaders have. Public speaking was just one of them. Um, but, but the main part, it, it appeared as though you will do well on a technical level. And all of a sudden they go, yeah, great. You're now a leader. Good luck. And, and, and as I, the more I studied it, it was as though, it was as though you're a great 
you know, um, hockey player. And they go, and you spent all your whole life playing hockey. And they go, you know, you're so good in hockey. Here is a baseball bat. You're now the captain of the baseball team of, you know, Toronto Maple Leafs. And you're like, what? <laughs> that, that's, that's how dramatic the, the change is. So I saw that huge gap there. And I decided to step in and fill it. But in doing so, um, I, I developed a three-path approach um, to get in there. One of it is the one you talked about, um, the content part, which is like developing the academic um, rigor and the academic discipline of really understanding the, the, the empirical data behind leading generally, and then leading when the hit is on, which is what the crisis you know, is. Um, and, and for 22 years, as I was going through management and senior levels, increasingly senior levels of management all around the world, I, I was like an ethnographic you know, um, researcher, you know, living with my audience, my fellow leaders, both within the organizations that I work for, the industries at large, and the economy at large, you know, the market at large, and being able to engage with them. And, and I was saying that, and I was taking notes. I, I will show you my, my field notes. So this notebook is about 21 years old. <laughs> of course, about 15 years ago, I switched, of course, switched to electronic. But there's still some, <laughs> there's still some real gems here. Um, you know, gathering information on and seeing how leaders were responding to different situations, learning from the good ones and learning how not to lead from those that fumble <laughs> the ball. So, yeah, so like an insider view of leadership that very few researchers have. So that's what I had for 22 years. And so, yeah, so really, really exciting um, to be able to bring that together in this piece of work um, in the Pragmatic Optimist. And one of the things I love that you were talking about, because um, you're someone who does the research, but then you're also like, what does that look like? And uh, it just shows your ambition and dedication to things, because I love that you said, okay, I'm going to look at the best leaders. And what are those qualities that I see in the best leaders? And you saw that they're compelling, they have credibility and the content. So then you decided, okay, I'm going to make sure that I do all of that so that I am encompassing all of those things that make a really great leader. So I'd love for you to share a little bit around what, how did you get those three different areas and really grow in them in, in your world? And then okay. why do you think it's so important for the really successful leaders in the world to really possess those three di different sections that you talk about? All right. Thanks. So, so at that time I was, um, um, seven years postgraduate, I was a middle level, mid to senior level management, um, and already had experience in how to develop strategies for organizations. And so if I was going to do this when I grow up, I need a plan, right? So, so I was like, hmm, okay, I think it's time to apply those principles that I use for my organizations for myself. So I sat back and the first thing you do in a strategy development is an environmental scan. So, and so I did an environmental scan and I was like, so who are the best leaders that I will want to be like when I grow up in terms of not be like them in terms of replicate what they do, but being able to replicate and have a similar impact on people. So, and, and I came up um, with about 35 of them, um, very successful in their fields. Um, and and, grew, and I now, the more I did the analysis, and I said, hang on, they're not just one, they're not just a monolith. These are people with specific skills, towering skills. And the first group that stood out for me was the compelling group. So these guys could sell snow to Canadians in the middle of winter. <laughs> they, they are that compelling. Um, and, 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 I, and I was wondering, why is that? And that's because leadership has a lot to do with the mind and psychology. And because this, this, the people in that group, they never set foot on the inside of a business school. But whenever they were speaking, those that went to the best business schools would be like taking notes and like, could you say that again? And I was like, what's going on here? <laughs> I found it weird. Many of them didn't even have college degrees. Like, or if they had a degree at all, it had nothing to do with business. They never ran anything in their lives. They never created anything in their lives. And I'm like, well, how, how come they're speaking on leadership and everybody's listening? That's because they understand the, the, the power of storytelling. They understand how to connect with the heart and the mind together 
and reel in their audience. And so they were, so I call that group compelling. They were compelling in their message. And, and here's the thing also, in leadership development, if people don't believe you, they're not going to take your message. They will just go, oh, yeah, that was a good seminar. And they walk away. But when they believe you, they'll go, you know, I think I need to change this in my life. And they begin to work on changing their behavior, which is the hardest thing to change, your own behavior. So, um, and they commit to it and they change because they believe there's a connection. So that's why being compelling is powerful. The second group um, that I found were those that I called credibility. So these were people who had been in roles that I'd been in, um, you know, EVPs, um, you know, C-suite, CEOs, board members, and all of them, Kirsten, had retired. They were all retired. And, and they were just like, you know, what else can I do? I've gone golfing, I've gone sailing. What else can I do? Oh, you mean people are willing to listen to me talk about my leadership experience? Okay, all right, sign me up. <laughs> And so they, that's how most of them got into leadership development. Um, so, so Jack Welch will be one of them, right? Uh, it, it was one of the towering examples. There are lots of them, but people who have held leadership roles, who have who had the track history. You could argue here or there about their history, like Jack Welch, <laughs> right? Uh, but but they do have a track a track record, and that's what gave them the credibility. They've been in the shoes of leaders. They know how it feels. They've handled mergers, acquisitions. They've, they've done the things that leaders are facing and they can share. But what I found about them was that most of them had only one industry experience because they, they, they weren't thinking of doing this <laughs> later. They were just building their careers. Um, so, so that was something that I saw. Then secondly, also, I realized that they were not really compelling speakers, <laughs> those that had credibility. And that's, and that's because they've always had power. Can you imagine if you were the CEO of GE and you call for a meeting of 2,000 people? The remaining 50,000 you didn't call be wondering, oh, how can I get on that list? <laughs> so, so, so his audience were always prepared for him. And, and no matter what he says, they're going to laugh. They're going to go, great speech. You, you, oh my God, you knocked that out of the park. <laughs> right? So, so most, most corporate leaders do not, go out of their way to develop their speaking skills. Um, and that's what that's something that I found, um, especially in leaders that I've worked with. Um, and, and so, yeah, so that's the second group, um, credibility, so compelling credibility. And then the final group were those that were like my dad, who by his mid-20s was already a PhD and an expert, global expert in his field. But Kirsten, he never worked for one day in that field. <laughs> Just from university, first class, he earned the first class from King's College London, straight to his PhD. And, and he was just doing academic work. So, so you find people who had PhD in sociology, organizational leadership, and all that coming up with models for leadership, but they themselves have never led a Tim Hurton shift in their lives. <laughs> Right. But, but but they have a model for how Tim Hurton should lead the entire organization. But it's backed up by empirical data, evidence-based data. So it's not like they are wrong, mm. but they have not just tested. They don't know how, how this looks like in real life. For you to be in the hot set, for you to have your quarterly um, um, earnings call coming up, and you have to take this decision and that decision, they don't. They, they, they've never been there, so they don't know what that model would do in their life. So, but but they were also very successful because they brought something to the table that none of the other two had. Mm. So I was like, hmm, okay, I see all the strengths, and like you said, you know what? I think I'm going to combine all three. <laughs> And and I'd work on it now. I didn't know it was going to take me 21 years at that time because <laughs> it took me from 1998 to 2019 to be able to go through the compelling. That was the first seven years. The credibility started also from the beginning. And I made sure I went through five industries. I, I made sure I went through the back office because I realized that back office leadership they thought differently from front office leaders. Mm -hmm. Oh, if you if you meet anybody from operations, from mm -hmm. finance, from mm -hmm. IT, from they think very differently from people who run the PNL. 
very differently, <laughs> right? Wow. So, so I've always wondered what's behind that. So I was always a front person, you know, front office person, but because of this, I I made a detour. I went to the back office and I rose to be a CFO. So not bad. <laughs> so, wow. but I was able to understand their thinking, their, their approach to life, their views. I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. they, they are always trying to minimize losses. Always trying to minimize losses. While the guys on the front end are looking to maximize opportunities right. <laughs> and, and willing to take on risks to do it. While these guys are like in trying to minimize losses, that means you don't want to take on risks. You want to limit the risk. And if it means limiting opportunities, they're fine with that. They're like, no, let's let's squeeze out the opportunities. We don't want that. And these guys are going, no, if we had hair, we'll be pulling it out. <laughs> so, 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 but understanding that both are legit, actually, and, and both of them, both thinking, coming together mm -hmm. is the foundation of actually pragmatic optimism. Mm. You're bringing your fusing both mindsets together. You don't look at them and call them BPOs. In some right. organizations, that's what they call them. Yes. The back office people, they call them BPOs, yeah. business prevention officers. Right. <laughs> so they're like, you guys are just there to throw spanners in our works. You know, you don't know what it means to make a deal. You just go there and say, no, 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 no. So there's always this tension, right? Yeah. So that's what I found. And you find that most CEOs, depending on where the company is, if the company is looking at, you know, driving rah, 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 you find that people that make the CEO come from the front office. If, if, if that leader had messed up in the past and caused the company a lot of issues, mm -hmm. guess the kind of CEOs, they, the CEO, they get the lifestyle from the back office. <laughs> they will go, you yeah. know what, enough of this front office people. We need discipline. You'll be hearing things like disciplined execution. Yeah. That's when they bring it. <laughs> yes. People from the back office, right? But, but ideally, it shouldn't be either or. It should be a combination, a fusion of both. And interestingly, that's what the pragmatic optimism is. It fuses both worlds and we'll talk yes. about that later so let me jump the gun so that's the story that's i love it and i think I, you've, you've explained it so many beautiful metaphors you you use i really like the one that you use with the hockey and all of a sudden they have to go into baseball because it's true right it's like oh now i'm a people leader before i was just doing this that i loved and not to say they don't love the humans but they don't necessarily have the skills to be able to do it um and i think it's so important what you're saying there um, oh my gosh, like so many different places I can take you with what you just said. But I think that integrating is so important too, right? Because, and uh, as you start to talk about the pragmatic optimist, all of one or all of the other is not going to serve. And I think that's why we need to have teams that are so diverse as well and be open to hearing the other perspectives. And, and you were even talking about when it comes to decision-making, how some of the observations that you made is other people might be coming in when the, those crisis moments are there and saying, you know, logically, I think this is what we should do. But that person who's in decision-making is refusing to hear what they're having to say. And so to me, that takes a lot of self-awareness and taking a step back and being willing to listen and being able to hear. I talk a lot about, I don't know if you're familiar with the conscious leadership and, and their work around being above the line or below the line. And so when you're below the line, it's happening to me. When you're above the line, it's happening by me. And I think so often, and I, I you did this a lot through the book, is helping people understand that it is a by me. And what does it look like to be able to, to take a step back and recognize how you can actually be being your worst enemy in this situation and especially with crisis. And, and this is going to be what's going to be most difficult for me, Daniel, because there's so many places I could take you with this book because it's so rich, which again, that's why I recommend we're going to talk about these concepts, but to really get in more, lots more depth in the book. Right. Um, but, you know, you think about stressful situations quite often, people will go back to their defaults. And they're not going to necessarily show up as their best selves because mm. they're in this moment where there's a lot of pressure on them and the emotions are, are intense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and that was why I, I, you know, offered a different acronym than the common VOCA, 
acronym, yes. you know, VUCA yeah. acronym for defining crisis, which usually just focuses on the organizational impact of, of crisis, organizational view of it. So I was looking at it from both the organization and the individuals within the organization, including the leaders. And also I talked about the risk, but the risk is not just to the organization, it's also to the leader and, and their careers and all that. So, and that feeds into how they make decisions to the point that you made. So, so is the risk, is the impact, the stress, the emotions, negative emotions, the uncertainty and the pressure. You bring all those together, that's the Rise Up acronym. You bring all of those together and bring it to bear on an individual and that individual actually changes behavior and they show up with a different personality. And that's because the stress of a crisis alters our, our personality. So, so, and there's a lot of research in this area. Um, that's the foundation of the research um, behind Hogan assessments, which I mentioned in the book. Um, and, and, and I'm a you know, Hogan certified um, consultant as well. So when I was going through it, I was like, hang on, this, this is crisis. <laughs> this is you in a crisis situation. So what Hogan does is to look at three, so Hogan generates three reports. The first is called your bright side, which is, which is you showing up in your best self, okay? And, and uh, the second is your dark side, which is what I just described now. And that is how you show up when you're under intense pressure. It's not like the first, a different you actually comes up. And that's why it's so easy to, to do things that you were not doing before and, and make mistakes that you would never make normally. So, and then the third report is called your inside, which is your, your motives and your values and what is driving you as a person. So all three, when leaders understand them, they're able to know, okay, here is a crisis situation. And to your point, it heightens self-awareness. That is critical. Knowing where you are emotionally, it's critical. Just dismissing it, Oh my goodness! Uh, it becomes it becomes the silent leader of the situation, um, and and you wouldn't know that it has taken over. It takes over without you realizing it. That's what research has shown, um, and then only for you to look back at the trail of of you know regrettable decisions that have been made. Well, and I think you talk about a lot of different areas with this, which is so important is understanding, okay, when this is happening, what are you going to do? What are going to, what will your coping strategies look like? How are you going to take a step back and recognize what you need to take care of yourself in that moment when all of that is going on? And so um, I'd love for you to start there, right? So there might be a leader who's listening to this right now and mm. crisis, there's a whole spectrum of crisis and they might be in a different place on that spectrum. Um, and you even talk about where it's the beginning part or where you're already in it or when it's afterwards, like there's, there's all those different places that you go to right now, but someone might either be in a situation where, um, you know, there's, there's stuff that are starting to bubble up or they might just be thinking, actually, nothing is bubbling up, but I want to be really listening very carefully <laughs> to what Daniel had to say right now. So the next time that situation happens, I'm not going to do what I did last time. I'm not going to go on my default. I'm going to handle this a bit differently. So for those leaders who are listening, what would you say to them? Hmm. It's um, so this is under this is the part of the book that I call control under fire. And, and it opens up by, by saying that how you feel dictates how you lead. Um, as much as we want to say that we are rational human beings, um, and as you've seen from my background, I come from a highly analytical background and highly rational background. But I can tell you that despite all of those numbers, all of those indices, all of those ratios and graphs and projections and simulations and all that, they get filtered through your emotional self. And at the end of the day, is it fear that is going to drive the conversation or hope that is going to drive the conversation or a fusion 
of both that would drive it. That is, that is one of the key things that we need to recognize, that we can never be devoid of emotions, no matter, you, no matter how strong-willed you think you are, <laughs> it, because it's operating in the background, and it's like your operating system. I think that was a, the, the, the analogy I used in the book. You don't, if, you have, if you have an iPhone, you don't ever think of iOS until you have to upgrade, right? But, but guess what? Your upgrading is happening simultaneously without your permission <laughs> in, your, in your emotions. And so, and so just like iOS is happening, work, doing all that work in the background. All you are using are the apps, but those apps never work without connections to iOS. That is so. Once you understand that, that you know all of this rational thinking that you think you have, they are just apps sitting on your phone. You cannot use them without the iOS. So your rational thinking sits on your emotional being, which most of the time is running in an unconscious state. Um, so, but what the book is challenging is for you to take a pause and to go, okay, I want to make this part conscious. I want to bring this part conscious because the moment you bring it to your consciousness, you can massage it, you can tweak it, you can make amendments and then send it back into the unconscious, bring it back to the conscious. You may need to do it a few times <laughs> before, before you train your mind to you know, put it on autopilot um, and, then, and then you'll be able to lead that way. Um, those, are, those are some of the tools and the, and the skills that I you know, talked about in the book. Yeah. And tell me a little bit more, because I mean, I'd love to be able to go through every single section here. And I'm even going to just for people who haven't had an opportunity to read the book yet. So we talk about um, clarity and chaos. We talk about control under fire, conviction to act, concerted decision making, conscientious communication and connection to caring systems. Um, you know, you're such a great storyteller as well. I, I'm curious if you were to share in organization some of the things you, that were really surprising to you in these crisis moments around how leaders were showing up. And, you know, even for people listening right now, what you would have liked to have seen more of and what you mm. would have liked to see less of. Mm -hmm. So so one of the key ones that, that jumped uh, to my mind, and I mentioned it in my thesis itself, and also a bit a bit in the book, uh, was a, a leader who was just having you know a heart to heart conversation. He wasn't in a crisis or anything like that, and he just said, just out of the blues, he was the one that brought up crisis. I had even started researching on this, so this was like maybe like 12, 15 years ago. So I know, and he just brought it up, and he goes, you know what, Daniel. I, I really hate when things go out of control. You know, I've always liked things to be organized and orderly. And the moment a crisis hits, it's like, I just want to dive under my desk and hide away. <laughs> and, and, I, and I had I had the drink in my mouth and he just went, he just went flying because I was just picturing him and he's a big guy, you know, jumping under, under his desk. And, 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 and that, was not the image that you would have if you if you ever met him. You would think, oh, he's somebody who's always in control. And but but he was sharing his his deep you know um, emo emotional state when it comes to um, a, a a stressful situation and how he handles stressful situations. And, and I'll go so so okay. Obviously, you can dive under your desk. So what do you do? <laughs> and he goes, oh, I delegate it immediately, and then. And then I noted that. But when I began my research, all the red flags just started going off because you cannot delegate crisis response as a leader. Actually, a, a, a crisis is nothing other than a test of leadership. That's what a crisis is. So, so you cannot sidestep it successfully. You can definitely you know, um, delegate it, but it will always come back to blow up in your face, always. So I found those kinds of responses. I also found responses that are like doom and gloom. Oh, the, the, the world is coming to an end. Like, no, it's a transaction that has failed, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and yes, it's going to make you look bad, 
bad. You're going to miss your numbers. You're going to, but it's not the end of the world. And, you know, the ability to be able to ring fence negative events when they happen and limit them to where they've happened in reality, not, not because you're in denial, but because you've defined where that is and you recognize that, well, this other hole is going well. That's a great skill to have, to be able to ring fence a crisis and not let it bleed into every area of our lives. Right, right. So that's another one. Then a third and final one is the happy-go-lucky thing. Crisis? What crisis? Nah, everything is great. Everything is great. We're going to hit our numbers. We're going to achieve this. We're going to... And, and you know that that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know. And, but, but they will go, yeah, yeah. But I have to be hopeful. I have to, be, I have, I have to project confidence. I was like, no, you're projecting, well, the first three words, of confidence, but that's not confidence. That's con. You're projecting yeah. con. <laughs> yes, it's in, it's denial, right? And it reminds me even of that we've talked about the, the toxic positivity, right? Where that's that we have to acknowledge. Like I, I've even seen some of that when we talk about the pandemic and people coming back to work, and some people aren't ready to go back to work. And the 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 way of approaching is like, oh, come on, everyone, it's great. It's no acknowledge. Like we understand how that must feel. We understand how it's hard. We understand over the last two years, it looked this, this way. And now all of a sudden we're asking you and, and to communicate and acknowledge and validate people's feelings. And when I hear the, the denial piece, like that makes it even harder for the people. Cause they're like, well, now I have even less trust with you because you're saying like, you're pretending it's not happening. <laughs> that, that, that denial um, is, is on the top of the 10 things I listed on how not to respond to a crisis. Denial. That, that to me, I think is one of the, it, it's actually, it, it is one of the most disingenuous things that leaders do. And, and it doesn't matter whether they're being overtly optimistic or pessimistic. Both of them are susceptible to it. Yeah. Right? So, 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 and, and, but the bottom line is they've not acknowledged that there's something going on. And, and you find that, that in, in wider research, forget about crisis, nothing to do with crisis, just wider research, you find out that there's a dichotomy between the view of staff and view of management. It's always a huge gap. <laughs> and the best organizations are the ones that bring them closest to each yes. other they they hardly will overlap but bring them closest to each other um, and i'll give you an example microsoft um, just announced uh, the result of a study last week yeah. uh, about twenty thousand people participated in that study globally so it's a mm. huge study yeah. of employees and management so staff mm. and management mm -hmm. and and the question was yes i am as productive Mm. or even more productive mm. when I work from home, mm. right? <laughs> that mm. as in the office. Mm -hmm. And the manager were to say, yeah, whether they agreed to that or not. Mm. And the results showed that 87% of staff said, yes, we are as productive or at the minimum as productive or sometimes more productive when yeah. we're working remotely mm. versus in the office. Mm. Mm. Guess what? 80% of managers disagreed with that. <laughs> I mean, how, how wide is this chasm that we're talking about? You, you also see that you also see that chasm in culture. Mm -hmm. So so organizational culture or values. Management will go, here are our values. It's A, B, C. And, mm -hmm. and if they've been trained in common. Applications. They, they repeat it everywhere. They put it in, in stories. They put it in mementos. They put it everywhere. Yes. But employees come in and they're witnessing and experiencing X, Y, Z for Americans yes. or Z for the Canadians. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they're experiencing. And management is preferring ABC. Mm. But, the, but the experience in the organization is totally different. Research says that whenever you have that dichotomy, yeah. guess what? The behavior will tend towards 
the reality in the, in the organization, not what is being said. Yes. Yes. So what is being said gets put aside and the reality becomes reinforced. Yeah. It's funny. You're reminding me when I, when you're saying this, there was a, they were doing an engagement survey and asking different questions and it was getting into like the values and the behaviors and then asking employees, do you feel like the leaders are demonstrating these behaviors so that, that are aligned with the values and the employees were like, no, no, no. And then the leader said, well, this isn't true. Like this is it. Like was not even willing. Like there, we've got a whole bunch of feedback from the employee saying, "No, I do not see those behaviors being lived out day in and day out." Uh, and and so great, thank you, thank you, employees, for giving us this feedback because that means there's not an alignment and there's an opportunity for change. And here we have the leader saying, "Well, that's not true." <laughs> so 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 as a as a consultant, I'm also in my corporate career. I've been in rooms where we're debriefing with senior management on the output of an employee survey, you know, a, a pulse check or yes. whatever name that they call it. So, so, but you're you're polling employees to say what are your views, yes, and and really with the plan of taking it in and making adjustments. But there was one particular one, and I rem and there's so many like this. But let me just hone in on one particular one, and I live. Listen to the discussion after putting all the results on the on the screen and a discussion for 45 minutes. And I then it was my turn to speak. And I said, um, have you noticed that for the past 45 minutes, here's a summary of what we've just said. We've said employees are wrong and we are right. <laughs> that that's just what you so so what's the purpose? of doing uh, a survey like this? What's the purpose? If you're going to only accept things that you that align with what you want yeah. <laughs> and then dismiss the majority of the input of those who are leaving it. Because going back on the denial thing, research also shows that the, the higher your income in the private sector organization, mm. the more the higher your propensity to deny that there's a crisis. Ah, and this has been done. And this was actually done by my supervisor uh, who supervised my, my doctoral study. She partnered with somebody else to do this study and she mm. published it just last year mm. no, or early this year. I think early this year, mm. a few months. Yeah, early this year. Mm. And it was such a it was such a revealing thing because that was what I've experienced. Uh, you find that management will go crisis. What crisis? No, no, no. We're fine. Everything is mm. great. Mm. Whereas people in the front, front lines are going, no, clients are leaving. We're losing this. We're losing that. So, so it appears that the greater your responsibility in the organization, the greater your your tendency for deniability. That's yes. how I've explained that. Yes. <laughs> so. So be aware before you dismiss. Don't, don't think that you're being smart by dismissing. Actually, that is actually a default of leaders to dismiss. Okay. So when you're when you're saying that, you know, when you're feeling that, you know, drive to dismiss, take a pause mm -hmm. and ask questions. Ask more questions. Let your response be in form of questions and inquiries and trying to get behind the thinking instead of being dismissive because yes. you can dismiss so many things you yeah. cannot dismiss a crisis yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. here to stay it, it, yes. it will not go away it will get worse um so you can you you shouldn't be dismissive pause and ask the questions and join your team to get to the root of it yeah, I mean, I always am such a big believer in, in tuning into curiosity, um, curiosity in many ways, right? Curious around yourself and why you're behaving the way, because I think you you explained really well that, you know, crisis moments are those opportunities that you could really up level your leadership, right? Because it's not about what goes on in the day to day. Those. Yes, we still want in the day to day and non crisis situation for you to still be showing up as a leader and who you're being is, of course, important, but the opportunity is actually in those moments, you're going to grow into an even better version of yourself because you're now using all of these tools that are helping you like, okay, in this moment, I know my default wants to go here. I want to hide. I want to run. I want to point fingers. I want to blame all of these things. 
yet I'm going to consci- consciously choose, I'm going to show up differently here. And then you're building that muscle and you get to take that forward in other situations. And, and, and a great point, um, Kristen. And, and that's because there is no time in the life cycle of an organization where leadership is most needed than during a crisis. It's, it's, there's something about a crisis. One of the participants in my study, over 40 years experience on the board of several organizations. And he said this, he said, Daniel, there's something about a crisis that makes everybody look up. He said, people don't look down in a crisis. They look up to the leader Mm -hmm. to go, what do we do? Yes. How should we respond to this? And something else that I found in, in my research and in my personal experience is that leaders have a tremendous level of goodwill from their people when they're facing a crisis because the people want to get out of it. So, so they're willing to give you the benefit of doubt. They're willing to go the extra mile. They're willing to forgive any misstep. They, don't, they, they, they know that you are, as long as you're being sincere, you will make mistakes. They're not going to dwell on it. No, they are on your side. And, and they want to see you succeed. But unfortunately, many leaders blow that opportunity. They blow it away <laughs> and, and mishandle it. And they don't harness it. This, what I went into the book is to teach you how to harness that goodwill, that, that, that camaraderie. Number one, by learning to externalize your own feelings about what is going on and to do it in a constructive way. So I call it externalization of optimism. You need to be able to externalize it in a way that is believable, not in a pie in the sky kind of way, yeah. in a way that recognizes, that recognizes the higher situation the critical situation and the, and, the, and, the, and the perversity that is going on, but also being conscious to say, but despite all this, mm. we will find a way out. Mm. I trust us. I trust you. We will let us rally. We have to find a way. And that's why, that's why you know, someone said leaders are dealers in hope. Nathaniel, uh, sorry, Napoleon Bonaparte. That's it. He's, he was a military leader. It, you don't bring in leaders. You don't bring in soldiers. You can bring them by conscription, but for them to do what you want them to do, they need to buy into you. And from what we're seeing so far, that looks like that's what Russia is struggling with. Mm-hmm. They've conscripted people, but they, but there's no willingness to fight. And that's what I talked about in the in the book. You need to create a willingness to fight. That willingness is what, I mean, uh, uh, the military history and military theorists, they say that the, the power of any military is calculated by, by two attributes. Number one, their the power of their equipment and their capabilities. So the manpower, the equipment and all that, that's one. He said yeah. the second is the power of their will. How willing are they to put their lives on the line? That's the second thing. And, that's, and that is the conviction to act that I talked about in the book. You, you, when you show conviction yourself, mm. you create conviction in other people. And they see that thing from your lens and they are committed to it, you will go places and, and your leadership will get onto a higher level because, because crisis never leaves a leader the same way. It does not. It does not. It, it, it either batters your leadership and all of a sudden you've actually lost credence in the view of your people <laughs> or it, 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 it takes it to a higher level of quality that people begin to respect you even more and you yourself begin to get more confident in mm-hmm. your area of leadership. Crisis leadership is not a field of leadership. It's where leadership is field tested. Mm. So good. So good. Oh my gosh, Daniel. I could listen to you talk about this for hours. Um, I want to give people an opportunity to learn more about you, but I always also like to give my guests an opportunity to leave a final thought. I mean, I think what you just said there was incredibly powerful. However, this is your opportunity. So what shows up for you around all of this? If you were to summarize as a final thought, whatever is on your mind right now. 
Um, wow, thank you. A blank check. Mm, <laughs> and I need to be and I need to be surgical. Okay, here goes, here goes, here goes. <laughs> um, the a time of crisis um, is a time where your leadership is put on the spotlight. Um, leaders mostly suffer from the spotlight effect, which is a feeling of having all, all eyes on them, right? But in reality, people are not really thinking about you like that, <laughs> right? So, so get off your high horse, right? That's not what people are thinking about. But in a crisis, all eyes are really on you. But, and I said in the book that the leaders suffer from the reverse spotlight effect, which is they don't realize how much people really depend on them during a crisis. Um, so, so that's what I want you to like reflect on that. And they're depending on you to see them through. Um, and every one of them, whether they're being, you know, like you said, when crisis happens, everybody goes into their corners. Um, the pessimistic ones become overly pessimistic and the optimistic one just wants to sweep everything under the carpet that everything is right. You want to be able to pull those two groups together and find a unity between mm. them um, and create what I call the pragmatic optimist, which rejects deliberately certain aspects of optimism and certain aspects of pessimism, but accept specific accept of aspects of both of them. And I'll give an example for, for the pessimism. Pessimism part that the leader embraces is that the pessimist knows exactly what is going on, what is going wrong. Mm -hmm. so, so that clear-eyed view on what is going on, you need it. You need it. You have someone in your team who is always like calculating what's going on. Bring them closer. Let them do it. <laughs> Right? Don't go, oh, here you go, wet blankets and throw them out of your office. You know? yeah. uh, um, and another part is the pessimists also recognize their limitation. They're going, you know what? We can only do so far. We don't have capabilities to do more. An optimist will go, bring it on. We will do it. We will do it <laughs> until, until they drown. So, so, so that, that, that clear-eyed view on the limit of your capabilities and knowing when to ask for help very critical. So the, the so that's the pessimistic side. The optimistic side that they hold on is that if, if, if an optimist that they hold on that, that is important here is a solution-minded person. Someone who is not just saying that tomorrow will be better and that's it. No, you ignore that. That is that is called Pollyannaism. Okay. So you want to ignore being Pollyanna, right? You that you reject that. The one you will accept is Tomorrow will be better and I will, I and my team can do something about making it better. So you take on personal responsibility for it. And a, a second part also to round up is of, of optimism that you should look to embrace is, is, your, is a proper explanation, internal explanation of, of what is going on. A, a, a well-trained optimist who has learned the skill will we'll not personalize a crisis. Many leaders personalize crisis. In fact, one of them said, and I quoted in, in the book, is that the crisis almost feel like a personal attack on me, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's like crisis is going around going, okay, Kirsten, I'm coming for you now. <laughs> no, that's why it was. So, so don't, don't personalize it because the moment you do, you will begin to make the wrong decisions, okay? Uh, you know, dissociate yourself from it. See it as what it is and define it within the confines of its parameters that you've allowed your pessimistic side to help you define. And then you begin to apply resources to attach it, um, to attack it. It doesn't matter whether this is organizational crisis we're talking about or personal crisis. Actually, the more you're able to do this on a personal level and you do it well, those are the skills you will take into the office. Because I'm of the opinion, as I said before we started the podcast, is that when you meet a professional, when you meet an executive, when you meet a leader, when you meet anybody, an entrepreneur, you're actually meeting two people. You're meeting the entrepreneur developing that new product, but you're also meeting the person that 
is wrapped around the character. Most people just look at the professional and they ignore the person. The professional is great on the technical side of things, even on the managerial side of things, because management is the organization of technical activities. But the leadership part of it sits on your person. Therefore, for you to change as a leader, you need to change as an individual first. And, and surprise, surprise, the, the, when I went into the history of, of crisis research, it actually began with people's private, personal crisis, health crisis that we will all face at some point in our lives. Health crisis. So chronic health crisis, that's the foundation of crisis research. All of crisis. So 50, 60, 70 years ago, that was the foundation of crisis research because it all begins with a person always begins with a person um, and it's that person that 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 needs to change so as you're reading the book as you're listening to this podcast you're, you're you're asking yourself three questions what do i need to stop doing what do i need to start doing and what do i need to continue doing if you, if you just pick just one and you work on that and people around you begin to notice that change boom you you, you become a better version of yourself <laughs> Beautiful. And anyone who's been listening to the podcast is very used to me saying these exact things that you're a whole person and personal and professional, they merge all day long, constantly. And as we evolve, we evolve as a human. Um, Daniel, where can people learn more about you and your work? Um, so uh, my my website, the corporate website is Resolute, Resolute, no E at the end, um, consulting.com. So resoluteconsulting.com. I'm on LinkedIn, so just my name, Daniel Monaghan on LinkedIn. Let's connect. And my book is available on Amazon um, as well. I'm really grateful to the response, um, Kristen. Within six hours of my of the announcement of the book, it shot up to number one on Amazon Hot wow. New Releases. So really, really excited um, about the reception that it's gotten. And and so many university libraries and business school libraries are are you know buying them now, <laughs> buying the book in quantities, large quantities, and and distributing um, in the organization. Because this, this is not one thing that may happen. The, the crisis will happen. And, but most importantly, your behavior in a crisis, and this is from research, is the strongest predictor of your leadership quality. Mm. How you show up in a time of crisis is, the, is one of the strongest predictors of quality of the leadership that you have so so true thank you so much for being here today daniel pleasure thanks for having me time flew so quickly <laughs> and I, so quickly and for everybody wherever you are in the world good morning good afternoon good evening we're sending tons of love bye-bye thank you bye please remember that meaningful change requires space and grace Practice self-compassion and become the ripple. As you transform yourself, you transform your workplace and the people around you.